Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. EM Cases is part of SREMI, Schwartz-Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute, the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for information and education purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. A whopping 1 billion doses of acetaminophen, or paracetamol, as it's called in some countries, are taken safely each year. But with that much acetaminophen being ingested, it's no surprise that about 10,000 people in Canada every year overdose on it. Some acetaminophen overdoses are easy to diagnose and relatively straightforward to manage in the ED, but there are many points along the way of taking care of these patients where pitfalls can rear their ugly heads, leading to less than ideal outcomes. And that's what this episode's going to be about. So pitfalls in the recognition and management of acetaminophen poisoning. We're hoping that by the end of this episode, you'll recognize all the places where it's easy to trip up in managing these patients and provide stellar care for your next acetaminophen overdose patient. And I'm so happy to have back on the show our go-to EM toxicologist. You've likely heard many times before on EM cases, uh, my personal fave being episode 90 on low and slow poisoning. The wonderful doctors Emily Austin and Dr. Margaret Thompson, who work at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto and at the Ontario Poison Centre. At the Poison Centre, they help docs like you and I manage hundreds of tox patients a year. Welcome back, and thanks so much for coming on the show and sharing your blinding brilliance with us. (laughs) Thanks, Anton. Thanks, Anton. (laughs) All right, let's start with a little case. A 55-year-old woman with a history of chronic back pain presents to your ED with a 24-hour history of nausea, sweating, and vague abdominal discomfort. Review of systems reveals pretty much nothing else. She's otherwise healthy, except that she recently had an upper respiratory tract infection. Medications include Percocet that she takes three times daily. She also took some NyQuil, an over-the-counter cough and cold medicine, for her URI. She smokes a pack a day and drinks about two to five alcohol beverages daily. On exam, her vitals are within normal limits, except that she's a little bit tachycardic. Her abdominal exam reveals slight tenderness to deep palpation diffusely with no peritoneal signs. Now, this episode's on acetaminophen poisoning, so the diagnosis isn't going to be a surprise for our listeners. But Dr. Thompson, could you just pick out for us some of the features of that history that make it worrisome for the possibility of acetaminophen poisoning? Number one, this is a lady who has chronic back pain, and she's prescribed Percocet, which has got acetaminophen. The set part of that is acetaminophen in it. And maybe her pain's been a little bit worse. Maybe she's taken more than her prescribed amount. Um, So you worry that there's more acetaminophen than what she's supposed to be taking. And then she has a URTI, as you described it, and she's got NyQuil in her medications. And NyQuil, which most people don't understand, actually contains some acetaminophen as well. So how much of that has she been taking? I think it's really prudent for an eMERGE doc to go through exactly, well, how many Percocet have you taken a day and how many NyQuil have you taken for your symptomatology? When did you last take a NyQuil, for example? And she's at risk as well because she drinks a fair bit of alcohol for a female. And so that might mean that she has a liver that doesn't have as much glutathione stores in it. And she's potentially induced her 2E1, 
which is the SIP enzyme that metabolizes acetaminophen parent to the toxic metabolite, the NAPKI that everybody um, is always worried about that causes the, hepato- the hepatic failure. So there's a lot of things in this particular story that are worrisome. All right. And we'll talk soon about how unintentional overdoses are the ones that are tricky to pick up and they're the ones that have generally the bad prognosis. Let's talk about clinical presentation a bit more. So Dr. Austin, what do we need to know about the clinical presentation of acetaminophen poisoning so that we can sort of better understand the the common pitfalls in the recognition of it? You know, I think that if we sort of start at the beginning with it, the important thing to know about acetaminophen is that there's probably about three different scenarios that patients often present in. So the first presentation is going to be the easiest one to kind of wrap our heads around, where we have, let's say, a 45-year-old male who has just taken an overdose of a bottle of Tylenol, and he presents saying, you know, five hours ago, I took a whole bottle of Tylenol, I wanted to commit suicide, and I had this ingestion, a single one-time ingestion with sort of suicidal intent or, or purposeful intent. So that's going to be one scenario where people present on. A second scenario is very similar to the one that you just described, where somebody has taken super therapeutic doses of acetaminophen over a prolonged period of time. And these types of patients are a little bit more challenging to pick up because, you know, sometimes they may give us that history where they may be having a mental health crisis and could have taken super therapeutic doses of Tylenol with suicidal intent over a prolonged period of time, or they could have no intent and could have just by accident taken super therapeutic doses trying to treat their pain or their whatever symptom it is. And that is the sort of the trickier ones to pick up because we need to be astute in recognizing that acetaminophen is contained in many, many different over-the-counter products and that people can take toxic doses of these inadvertently. And we need to kind of ask the questions around it and delve into the history a little bit more. I would say that the final scenario might be the patient that is this sort of massive acetaminophen overdose. And I think we're going to talk about that a little bit later, so I won't get into it right now, other than to say that this would be a patient who presents maybe altered and has a metabolic acidosis with an elevated lactate. And this would be the patient who is found with five bottles of acetaminophen next to them and ends up having a very toxic and high concentration of acetaminophen. And that would be the third scenario. So the clinical presentation is tricky because... Acetaminophen looks differently depending on how you were taking it and what you took. And people can present very differently with it. And how we think about each of those scenarios and how we manage them and assess what the risk is can get tricky a little bit. Absolutely. Especially when you pile on top of that, uh, like in the case I presented, someone who might have some underlying liver damage to begin with that might, as you described, augment the toxicity. So there's many patient factors, but I like that. Three different ways of thinking about the presentation. One is your kind of -of run-of-the-mill overdose, intentional, that isn't too sick and isn't altered and all of that. And that probably took it all at once and it comes in within a short time period after. Right. So the single ingestion with intent. The other one is whether it's intentional or not is the non-single ingestion one where it can either be intentional or unintentional and then the massive overdose. And we'll talk a little bit more about all of those. And what's important to understand in all of those is the stages of acetaminophen toxicity because your patient's going to present in different ways depending on what stage they present at. 
So let's talk a little bit about the stages. What are the four stages of acetaminophen toxicity and how does that sort of inform how these patients are going to present, what symptoms they're going to present with, and how we might approach them? I think the stages are relevant for the patient that Emily described who took a single one-time um, overdose or had a single one-time exposure over a couple of hours at most and presents with that first stage of GI upset. I like to explain it as that acetaminophen actually has a phenol group on it. And so phenols are caustic and they probably cause GI upset because they're phenols. And so you get nausea, vomiting, anorexia, not usually diarrhea, but those initial symptomatology early on after their exposure. And maybe that's why a lot of them present is because they didn't expect that they would start vomiting and get sick. Then they have go into this phase two or stage two where they're fairly quiescent. The nausea and vomiting symptomatology goes away and they think that they're better and that there was an irrelevant um, exposure really. Until phase three, which is the hepatotoxic phase, where patients start to get right upper quadrant pain, the nausea and vomiting returns because they start to get hepatic injury secondary to the napki that's been formed. And it takes time for that to be formed for the acetaminophen parent to become that metabolite that's worrisome. And the secondary markers of inflammation getting in there and symptoms recurring at that phase. Now, some people break it out into another phase of, you know, basically hepatic failure and multi-organ failure where they develop acidosis, coagulopathy, hypoglycemia, et cetera, hypotension, secondary hepatorenal syndrome. So that's the phase of multi-organ failure. There's some textbooks that break it out as being five phases and others that would put the hepatic toxicity in with the multi-organ failure. And then the last phase, whether it be four or five, is considered to be recovery or death. So spontaneously, your liver gets better or you go on to die because of all the complications of the multi-organ failure. That's the classic toxidrome for acetaminophen poisoning. All right. So there's, let's call it four stages, just to keep it simple. I'd like to talk a little bit about the timing of those so that we have a sense of you know when the ingestion was, if we can figure out when the ingestion was, and what we expect their symptoms to be. So stage one, again, is the nausea, vomiting, GI upset, and that's going to be about the first 24 hours? Actually, probably about the first six. Just six hours? Yeah. Okay. And then there's the quiescent phase, which is stage two. Up to the 24-hour mark. So the quiescent phase is going to be after six hours to 24, 48 hours sort of thing. Yeah. And then stage three, when they start getting really sick, that's usually after 24, 48 hours. Right. So, so far we've established that there are three different ways of thinking about the presentation, that there are multiple comorbidities and other medications and co-ingestions and all kinds of other things that can make the presentation more complicated. And there's four different stages where they can present with different symptoms and, and different clinical parameters. So we've so far established that acetaminophen poisoning is not one single entity and that it is quite complicated. Maybe one other thing to mention in the stages is when we start to see abnormalities in the blood work and what those are. That's a helpful pearl that I find I actually apply all the time when I'm managing these cases. So let's take a patient, for example, 
who the most straightforward one is going to be a patient who has that acute one-time overdose. So I'll use me as an example. I was having a hard time. I take 100 tablets of 325 milligrams of Tylenol and a one-time ingestion, and I'm going to present to hospital, let's say, six hours after taking that ingestion. I'll be in stage one right now, and as Margaret said, I might have a bit of nausea and vomiting. And appropriately, somebody assessing me would probably go ahead and draw a serum acetaminophen level and also liver function tests and transaminases. So we can talk about that a little bit more. At this sort of first stage, when I'm presenting six hours after, my acetaminophen level you would expect to be elevated, but there will be no elevation in my transaminases. My AST and ALT will probably be completely normal. As you move on into the later stages, as early as 12 hours, but probably closer to 24 hours, you start to see your transaminases increase. And so if I'm this patient who actually, instead of presenting six hours later, maybe presents the next morning or 24 hours later, at that point, my acetaminophen may be undetectable, but I may have elevation in my transaminases, maybe an AST of 300 or 400 an ALT of maybe 200 or 300, you know, a little bit less. Okay. So the bottom line there is that early on, you expect the acetaminophen level to be high and then later on it decreases. Whereas with your liver enzymes, initially they'll be normal and then increase. So I guess one of the pitfalls is if you get a patient in the first 12 hours after an ingestion, their laboratory parameters can look perfectly normal, but don't assume that they're going to be okay because they can certainly run into trouble in, in 24 hours. Right. And so every patient who has taken an acetaminophen overdose that is going to go on to hepatotoxicity is going to have a bump in their AST, ALT, their transaminases by the 24-hour mark. It won't be the peak, but they will start to go up. So the reason to get initial liver enzymes and find out that your AST is 23 or 29 is so that at the 24-hour mark, you'll see it's still 23 or 29. They're going to be fine. If they're not going to be fine and they're going to go on to hepatotoxicity, they will have started to bump. And they may not be 100 yet. They may be 99, but they will start to rise by the 24-hour mark for every patient. That's a good nuance clarification. There's another pearl. Acetaminophen concentration is interfered with by bilirubin. And so if you present with hepatic toxicity, liver enzymes that are elevated, a high bilirubin, et cetera, your acetaminophen level may be positive because there's a colorimetric interference with high bilirubin levels. So if you present with a hepatitis, for example, an infectious hepatitis and have an elevated bilirubin, your serum acetaminophen concentration may be detectable when, in fact, it's actually because of your infectious hepatitis. So that's one example of a false positive elevated acetaminophen level is just if you have hyperbilirubinemia for any other reason. Right. Got it. The other pearl is that when you have a very high acetaminophen level on first presentation, so Emily, when she presents at the six-hour mark, has an acetaminophen level that's 2,000, for example, because of what she took, her INR will also be elevated at that time too because there's an interference of acetaminophen with the INR assay. And that INR then goes back down to normal. It doesn't reflect that there's hepatic injury or that hepatic function is off. 
So initially you have a high acetaminophen, an elevated INR, maybe 1.4, not 2.4, but 1.4, which in six hours goes back down to 1.0, and then starts to rise as you get hepatic failure. Okay, so just so we all get this straight, just clarify for me the difference between the trend in INR and the trend in the liver enzymes. So acetaminophen, the reason that it is toxic is because it goes on to cause hepatotoxicity and can cause acute liver failure, which is associated with all of the end organ complications of acute liver failure, including coagulopathies. So a patient who has developed acute liver failure from their acetaminophen toxicity will have an elevated INR and a definitive coagulopathy. But that INR will be elevated when that patient is in acute liver failure. And that's generally after probably day three about of an acetaminophen toxic presentation. What we know is that, and we get calls about this all the time, which are very appropriate because people are being diligent and stuff like that, but that somebody can come in after an acute acetaminophen overdose and have an elevated acetaminophen serum concentration completely normal transaminases, but their INR will be 1.8 or 1.9. It probably won't be above two. And that elevation of an INR in the acute phase, before the transaminases have increased, before there is evidence of hepatotoxicity, is related to both acetaminophen and its toxic metabolite interfering with the vitamin K cycle and and carboxylation of those vitamin K-dependent coagulation factors. There may be interference with the assay as well. So in that acute period, these INRs that are generally elevated but under 2 are not related to hepatotoxicity, but are related to the acetaminophen and circulating NAPQ itself and will resolve without anything specific. Okay, so that's tricky. So with the INR, it can be slightly elevated before the transaminases are elevated or if it's really elevated, it's going to be really elevated three days down the road when they're in fulminant hepatic failure. Right. Now, just to add a little bit more complication to this, anyone with underlying liver disease or co-ingestions can potentiate liver damage, and we need to be more, more worried about them. What are some of the other sort of clinical prognostic factors that we should be aware of that might trigger us to sort of be more aggressive in these patients or worry more about them? So acetaminophen toxicity, no matter who you are when untreated, and if you've had enough of it, the final outcome has the potential to be acute liver failure. And generally, people would end up dying because of cerebral edema as a complication of that. And the people who we get worried about that are going to have that outcome on presentation are people who come in quite delayed after their exposure. Okay. And so they should already start to see elevations of their transaminases, that's a bit worrisome. But actually, the other stuff that we get really concerned about are people who are already demonstrating signs, I would say, of sort of liver failure. And that would be the synthetic function of the liver is failing. So when you see evidence of hypoglycemia, when you see evidence of a coagulopathy, sometimes people are altered already. There's an association often of an elevation of the creatinine that we can see too. Those would be things that we'd be really worried about. Acidosis. The acidosis, yeah, for sure, sorry. And elevated lactate as well. All right, great. So those are some of the things that might trigger us to be more aggressive with patients. 
Anton, I would add, though, that there are even patients who aren't showing those that I start to get a bit concerned about. So one example could be a patient who is presenting, and this is like the classic super therapeutic unintentional ingestion case, the patient kind of like what you gave us in this case as an example, who, you know, takes acetaminophen chronically, maybe took a bit more of it, presents with nausea, vomiting, a bit of right upper quadrant pain. And that patient has a detectable acetaminophen concentration and is showing evidence of hepatic injury already. So that patient is going to have evidence of, let's say, transaminases in the low hundreds, maybe 99, even as Margaret said, but also has detectable acetaminophen. That patient is in this period where they still have acetaminophen that needs to get metabolized to its toxic metabolite, but they also have evidence of hepatic injury. And those people we worry a lot about because we worry that NAC isn't going to be as effective at preventing, you know, what can end up developing into pretty significant liver failure. That would be another patient that I'm really worried about that on the surface, you know, those numbers don't look horrific or whatever, but what's going on underneath the surface is that we know there's NAP key circulating and still acetaminophen and that there's already been hepatic injury. Great. I want to talk a little bit more about laboratory investigations. So just to kind of review what laboratory investigations we should be thinking about in someone who we might suspect has acetaminophen poisoning, uh, we want to get a glucose because, as you were saying, hypoglycemia is a bad prognostic sign. We want to get a creatinine. Again, AKI is a bad sign. We're going to get the usual electrolytes, uh, a lactate, because if their lactate is elevated, that's a bad prognostic sign, a VBG looking for metabolic acidosis in the massive overdose patient, of course, liver enzymes and an INR, as we were talking about, and then, of course, an acetaminophen level and an ASA level and probably an alcohol level, especially if they're altered to see whether they're altered because of alcohol or from the acetaminophen or both. And then there's uh, something we'll talk about in a little bit that's a bit controversial is uh, the phosphate level. So these are just some of the things to think about in terms of what to order up front for the patient that you suspect has acetaminophen toxicity. Since we're talking about the pitfalls in, in management, I just want to talk a little bit more about the laboratory investigations. You had already mentioned some of the pearls with the laboratory investigations and the trends over time. And we're going to talk about the nomogram in a minute because there's lots of pitfalls to talk about there. And it's tricky to interpret the nomogram if it's not a single ingestion that you know the time of overdose. What are some of the other laboratory investigation pitfalls that we need to know about or, or pearls? So I think we've already talked about the possibility of having a false positive acetaminophen level if your bilirubin is high. And in the setting of an acute acetaminophen overdose, we never see a bilirubin that's over 100. At the time that they've got the late fulminant hepatic failure, bilirubins can be elevated somewhat, but never sky high that they would interfere with acetaminophen levels. So that's one pitfall. Another pitfall may be that your lab is only able to give you an ALT. And an ALT does go up a little bit later than does the AST. So we want to be sure that we don't miss somebody who is going to go on to hepatic failure because we only have an ALT. And so for those patients, we might have to do serial ALT levels for up to 24 hours after an exposure to be sure that they're not going to go on to a delayed hepatotoxicity. And the ALT will take a lot longer to fall after you've been treating your patient because its half-life in the serum is a lot longer. 
So we have toxicologists like an AST because it goes up first, a little bit sooner than the ALT, and it falls faster so that we know that the patient's recovering faster than if we only have an ALT available. That being said, if we only have an ALT, we'll take it. We also know that there's certain preparations of acetaminophen that are either slow release in and of themselves. So all 650 milligram tablets of acetaminophen are a delayed release formulation. So that the first 325 milligrams is released in the stomach, basically, and the second 325 milligrams is released in the small bowel. And so the drug has to go to the small bowel before the inner coating is dissolved and the second 325 milligrams of acetaminophen are released. And because of that, sometimes we have patients who are line crossers. So when we usually recommend doing a four-hour acetaminophen level, like you suggested in the initial investigation of that acetaminophen poison patient, we would recommend a repeat acetaminophen level at the 8-hour and the 12-hour mark if they've taken an, a delayed-release preparation of acetaminophen to be sure that if the first level doesn't meet criteria for treatment, that we don't miss the patient who's had delayed absorption. And the other scenarios where that's important are those who take their acetaminophen with an opioid. So the, all these combination products, the Tylenol 1s, 2s, and 3s, the Percocets, for example, they all, because of the opioid, might be delayed in terms of when they actually dissolve and when they reach the small bowel to be maximally absorbed. And anticholinergics might affect your transmission to the small bowel. So if you've taken an anticholinergic, if you've taken some Benadryl, or you've taken some Gravol with your acetaminophen preparation, then you might get a delay in the time to your peak absorption as well. So a four-hour level may not be prognostic in those cases. So that's for sure a pitfall that we would recommend calling the poison center about when your patient has taken combination tablets. All right. Yeah, two things I want to touch on there. First is other pitfalls in interpreting the nomogram. And the other thing is the hyperphosphatemia. I've read a little bit about this in preparation for this that maybe hyperphosphatemia is the best prognostic test, assuming that the patient doesn't have already uh, AST through the roof and ALT through the roof and INR through the roof. You know, those, those will be obvious, but why don't we start with the hyperphosphatemia one, whether it's worth ordering, and if we do order it, how to interpret it, and then what the evidence for that is, and then we can talk about the nomogram some more. So when we're dealing with acetaminophen, there's so many different things to think about because what Margaret's just gone over are some of the pitfalls in interpretation of blood work for making decisions about which patient we need to be concerned about, i.e. which patient do we need to treat with NAC. And then there's a whole other set of considerations, which are which patients do we think are going to go on to develop acute liver failure that they won't survive from. And that's a sort of separate set of considerations. What, what is our sort of risk assessment or how do we prognosticate whether this acetaminophen poison patient is going to die of acute liver failure or will recover? And if we think that they're going to die, the question is, will they benefit from a transplant? When we're talking about the role of serum phosphate, it's helping us assess somebody's likelihood of developing acute liver failure or potentially dying from it. And it's in that sort of second 
prognostication question about who would we think about giving a liver transplant to. I'm aware of some papers that are out there as well. I'll tell you that prognosticating patients with acute liver failure, and again, what we're talking about in a more practical way for me is thinking about which patients would benefit from a transplant or is the patient going to go on to survive without a transplant. That prognostication, there's lots of different work that's been done to figure out what's the best tool to use. And the serum phosphate has been one of those tools that has been used because a study showed that when you have acute liver failure with a high serum phosphate, you had a higher chance of dying without transplant. So, you know, I think that if you are seeing a patient who said, I'm coming in, and I have actually seen this patient, I should say. So they they definitely exist. I've seen them at the bedside myself. If you are seeing a patient who said, let's say it's a Sunday, and the patient said, on Friday night, I took a bunch of Tylenol, and this patient's coming in with abdominal pain, and you order transaminases and an INR and an acetaminophen, and the transaminases, in my patient's case, I'd never seen an AST of 37,000 before, and this patient had an AST of 37,000 and an INR of 6. A serum phosphate would be a very helpful measurement in this patient. It would be a useful data point, I would say. It's not going to influence us, but it's a useful data point because we know that when that serum phosphate is higher, that patient has a lesser chance of survival. And part of the theory about this is that if the serum phosphate is low, maybe it's because there's some regeneration happening and the cells are using that phosphate. I imagine that's an important piece of information to know early if you can get it, whether a patient is likely to require a liver transplant, especially since the vast majority of acetaminophen poisonings are not in liver transplant centers. You're going to probably need your admitting team to start thinking about liver transplant early on and start maybe picking up the phone saying, hey, we have someone who may need a liver transplant because I imagine it takes a bit of time to get that organized. It does. The problem, I think, Anton, is that those patients don't always declare themselves until maybe day three or four. So the patient I've given you an example of is presenting, you know, let's say, 60 hours after their ingestion. But if that patient had been seen on Friday night, they wouldn't have evidence of acute liver failure at that point. And if we get them treated with NAC, with NAC yeah. they might not ever end up there. So go ahead and get the serum phosphate too, but it's not as useful unless we're in this setting of acute liver failure or severe toxicity, I would say. Is it fair to say that it's useful in patients who have a delayed presentation? Sure. Yeah, I think so. And all of this is data points, right? If you're considering transplanting a liver and, you know, that means lifelong immunosuppression for somebody, it may also save their life. But absolutely, it's going to be a helpful data point. Come practice family medicine in rural Alberta and receive incentives of up to $120,000. Enjoy lower house prices and abundant outdoor experiences. It's called the Reside Program. If you're a family physician who has been in practice for five years or less, see if you qualify for the Reside Program. Go to rpap.ca slash reside. That's R-H-P-A-P dot C-A forward slash R-E-S-I-D-E. That's R-H-P-A-P dot C-A forward slash reside. Let's talk a little bit more about the nomogram. So the nomogram was designed initially for acute single one-time exposure of acetaminophen. So it gets very complicated, I find, trying to interpret these when you're not sure the time of ingestion and you're not 
sure the volume of ingestion and you're not sure you know whether they've been taking an overdose every day for five days or an overdose every day for 30 days. There's lots of permutations and combinations. How should we best interpret the nomogram? As it was meant to be used. So if you have a patient who t- declares to you that they've taken a single one-time overdose of acetaminophen, and whether that be your child who's gotten into the liquid Tylenol and drank the whole bottle, or whether that be an adult who develops nausea and vomiting and, and regrets what they've done and presents to the emergency department, you draw an acetaminophen level at the four-hour mark after their exposure or as soon as they present to hospital, if it's later than that, and you plot that acetaminophen level against time on the Matthew Rumac nomogram. If they're over the treatment line, they get N-acetylcysteine, and if they're below the treatment line, except in the patient who has taken a preparation that's with an opioid, with an anticholinergic, or is a delayed release, you can plot that on the line and you can decide treatment or no treatment. For the patient who's taken those preparations in combination with an opioid or an anticholinergic or their slow release, you might have to draw a level again at the 8-hour mark and the 12-hour mark before you are sure that you've reached the peak and that the patient doesn't need treatment. But otherwise, you should interpret an acetaminophen level that is positive, i.e. that's greater than 66 micromoles per liter or 10 milligrams per deciliter, If you find an acetaminophen level that is positive, then you should treat that patient because all other scenarios are the delayed presentations or the staggered presentations or the unintentional that we would have missed for some other reason. Rumac Matthew-Nomogram is super awesome, but we can really only use it in such a narrow spectrum of acetaminophen toxic presentations. And I guess the other important point is it can only be used up to 24 hours after the exposure. So if, like Emily's patient, they present at 60 hours after an exposure, you can draw an acetaminophen level because you want to know if it's still positive. But based on a half-life of four hours, acetaminophen should be all gone by then. And you can't plot a number on a nomogram that only goes to the 24-hour mark. Okay, so it depends on the timing of the ingestion, the volume of the ingestion, whether it's a staggered ingestion, whether it's a chronic ingestion. We really have to be mindful of interpreting it only in the single overdose of someone who was not taking any acetaminophen prior within 24 hours. Right. As Margaret said, the nomogram, which is really awesome and is the science behind it and all the studies that went into it are super cool, It can only be used if we know what time a patient took their overdose at. So if you have a patient that cannot tell you that or that doesn't remember an unknown time of ingestion, use of the nomogram is off the table. It was developed based on actual patients that presented with acetaminophen toxicity and that didn't get treatment for it. And they plotted what the concentration was of the acetaminophen on this nomogram, and then they went on to see who went on to get sick. And what they defined was sick, and what the nomogram tells us is it is what patients are going to get a transaminase over 1,000. So the nomogram, if you take a single acute ingestion and present at four hours, and your 
serum acetaminophen concentration is above the line, that doesn't mean you're going to go on to get liver failure. All it means is that without treatment, you are at risk of developing a transaminase level above 1,000. That was very helpful for me to understand. I think that some of the other helpful points that are important to remember, especially for your audience, is that where you are in the world determines what the line is that you use. And I'm not talking about units here because the unit issue is absolutely an issue. In Canada, where we use SI units, our four-hour cutoff is 1,000 micromoles per liter. In the UK, and there's some interesting history here, the line is 100. So they use the US units for their line, and their line is even lower than the US line. So, you know, Australia and New Zealand, I understand that they use the US line as well. So I think that where you are in the world, because of local regulations and bit culture, have affected what line we use for treatment. I mean, of course, the next question I'm going to ask is, well, what line should we use? I mean, what's the most evidence-based in your combined vast experience seeing patients through the poison center? What should the line be? So the treatment line in North America is equivalent to 1,000 micromoles per liter at the four-hour mark that joins a line at the eight-hour mark that's 500 micromoles per liter. So that just signifies a four-hour half-life. That's the treatment line that's accepted in North America. That's not what the original research said, but the FDA required that the line be dropped by 25% for the what-ifs. What if they had lied about this being a four-hour level? What if they were also, you know, a chronic alcoholic? What if they took the preparation as Tylenol number threes? So for a margin of safety, we've dropped the original research line to the treatment line that I just described at four hours, a thousand micromoles per liter. And the only people who wouldn't use that are people in the UK who are going to be following their local guidelines. And I don't want anybody to get in trouble with their licensing. <laughs> so, <laughs> do what you have to do there. It's different in the UK. <laughs> Okay, so that's a lot about the nomogram. Suffice to say, again, because this is a common pitfall, is do not use the nomogram if it is not within 24 hours of a single discrete overdose. And I'm curious as to your opinion on universal acetaminophen screening in patients who present with any kind of suicidal ingestion. Should we be ordering acetaminophen level on all of those? And then secondly, for patients who just present with altered LOA that is not immediately obvious, should those patients get an acetaminophen level? You know, this is a tough question. I'm not expecting you to give me a precise exact answer that can be a rule for everyone. But could you just tell me your thoughts on who should get an acetaminophen level in the emergency department? And just for the audience to understand that we're talking to two toxicologists who work at a poison center, and so there's going to be a little bit of a referral bias there. But who should get an acetaminophen level? I think one easy thing to say is that it doesn't have to be the pediatric patient. So we have a child who's brought in by parents because they've had an exposure to all the ibuprofen that was sitting on the counter. They don't need an acetaminophen level. And so anyone who is unintentional in the pediatric age group, for sure. 
there's a lot of people who don't understand that there's a difference between acetaminophen and ASA, for example. So if somebody comes in with a self-harm attempt, I personally believe that they should have an ASA acetaminophen and an alcohol level to help explain some of their symptomatology, if they have depressed level of consciousness, etc. So I guess restating that, the patient who is self-intent should have an ASA acetaminophen level done, both because patients may not know the difference, because there's a lot of preparations that have either or of those components in them, and a patient may not know the difference between the two preparations, and because they're so easily available in every household. And so if you take an intentional overdose of you know medications that are in the cabinet, maybe you took the aspirin, maybe you took the acetaminophen as well. And these are life-threatening exposures, which can be treated effectively if you detect them. So from that point of view, I believe that all intentionals, even though the literature suggests that you don't pick up that many, you don't want to miss one that has such an easy treatment associated with it. The other people that, you know, that we're weary of are the decreased level of consciousness with metabolic acidosis. Because we have a bias based on working at the poison center where these patients have been identified as being, you know, altered for whatever reason and then somebody along the way or based on history draws a serum acetaminophen level and it comes back through the roof and this is the the etiology of their presentation. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, NAC is time dependent. The sooner you give it in a massive overdose or any large overdose, the more likely you are to save the patient's life. And so to me, it seems reasonable that for an altered patient, especially if they have an unexplained metabolic acidosis, that all those patients should get an acetaminophen level. Or they have abnormal liver enzymes, or they have a normal INR. Those, you know, if you pick that up, acetaminophen could easily be the etiology of that, depending on that, you know, the numbers that you have. So I think it's prudent to add it on if you hadn't thought of it in the first place. So maybe it's the, the plus one. So altered plus an abnormal INR altered plus an abnormal lactate, altered plus an anion gap metabolic acidosis. Even not altered, I'd say people who present with elevation of their transaminases that there's no clear etiology for. We have definitely seen these patients present and we have been consulted at our poison center for elevation of transaminases NYD and a serum acetaminophen is ordered and is detectable. Excellent. Okay. Now I feel much better about who to order an acetaminophen level on. <laughs> I mean, we try to be choosing wisely and, and to try and save the healthcare system dollars, but the cost of going on to you know liver transplant is significant when we have a very easily treatable condition. I want to send out a huge thanks to the more than 500 of you who registered for the EM Cases Summit in February 2023 and the amazing speakers who have set a new high bar for medical education public speaking. It was just so wonderful to have EM providers from all over the world interacting and sharing their perspectives. If you weren't there for the summit, no worries, we've got you covered. For a limited time only, the Summit Video Streaming Package gives you access to all the main stage talks, procedural videos, panel discussions, etc. from both the 2023 and the 2021 summits 
and the ebook summarizing the talks. We even have a panel discussion on fixing the current crisis in emergency medicine, concrete solutions to the hardships that we're all facing in our careers. Not only that, but you can claim 13 hours worth of CME credits as well. So just go to emcasesummit.com, that's emcasesummit, one word, dot com, to get your streaming package. It's only available for a few months, so please do go grab it soon. Now on to treatment of acetaminophen poisoning. I'd like to move on to treatments. So there's charcoal, there's NAC, there's famepazole, there's liver transplant, there's hemodialysis, there's all these different treatments. So I want to go through these one at a time. Let's start with activated charcoal. So Dr. Thompson, what is the role of activated charcoal in acetaminophen poisoning? And what is the dose, if you could remind us of the dose we should be using, if you are going to use it? So I would suggest using activated charcoal in the early presenter. So that's the patient who comes to the emergency department, you know, soon after their exposure. And that's most often the pediatric patient who parents, you know, identify that that all of the container is missing because the self-harming patient is not likely to come in unless they have a change of heart or unless they have GI upset early enough in their presentation for the acetaminophen to still be in the GI tract. We think that acetaminophen concentrations will peak at about the two-and-a-half-hour mark um, and start to be redistributed by the four-hour mark, and that's why we suggest doing a four-hour acetaminophen level. And if they're there four hours afterwards, most of the acetaminophen's probably been absorbed. And that's except the patient who has the delayed release preparation or has taken it with with an opioid or with an anticholinergic medication. But it would be reasonable to give activated charcoal up to two hours after the exposure if it's documented well what time it was. And the dose of activated charcoal is theoretically supposed to be 10 times the amount of the drug that was ingested so that there's adequate binding. But when we're talking about acetaminophen, these are big tablets, 325 milligrams, 500 milligrams, 650 milligrams, and people take large amounts of acetaminophen. And so we're practically never going to get them to take 10 bottles of activated charcoal, for example, to be able to give that 10 to 1 drug ratio. So it's probably reasonable to give them a decontaminating dose of 1 to 2 bottles of activated charcoal, so 50 to 100 grams for the average adult size patient. So in pediatrics, we usually recommend the 10 to 1 drug ratio if it's possible to achieve or a gram per kilo. And most pediatric preparations of activated charcoal are 25 gram bottles. Okay. So suffice to say that you want to generally go big-ish on your dose for acetaminophen in terms of activated charcoal. Because the exposures are usually big-ish. Yeah. And one to two hours for an acute ingestion. I've also read you can go up to four hours for a suspected massive ingestion. Is that reasonable? Because we don't get instantaneous absorption with the masses, and we don't get instantaneous absorption with those that are taken as delayed release products with opioids or with anticholinergics. So up to four hours for those scenarios. Okay. So for the straight up pure acetaminophen poisoning, one to two hours, give charcoal, and you can extend that up to four hours for extended release for patients who would have uh, delayed absorption for whatever reason or for massive overdose. Right. Got it. 
So that's charcoal. The next thing I want to talk about is NAC. Dr. Austin, the indications for NAC. So the indications for NAC are going to be in a single acute ingestion, somebody who is a line crosser. So they have a serum acetaminophen concentration that's going to be over that line. In all the other scenarios, there's many different permutations, but things that we use to determine who needs NAC or not are things like, is there detectable acetaminophen when we run an acetaminophen concentration? And what are the transaminases and is there evidence of transaminase elevation? Those are the people that need NAC. Let me give you an example. If you are a accidental supertherapeutic ingestion and that patient you illustrated at the beginning takes Percocet regularly, URTI, starts taking a bunch of over-the-counter preparations that contain acetaminophen, presents nausea, vomiting, right upper quadrant pain, that patient may have an undetectable acetaminophen concentration but may have elevated transaminases, that patient needs to be started on a NAC. So when there's a possibility that the elevated transaminases are because of acetaminophen, you should start NAC. It seems that there are many physicians out there who give NAC very liberally. You know, if they have any suspicion whatsoever of an acetaminophen overdose, they'll give it. And usually their reasoning is that there's very little downside. Any comments about throwing NAC at everyone with <laughs> the possibility of an acetaminophen overdose? I think if you can get an eight-hour, a leveled back within eight hours, and you can plot it on the nomogram because it's a scenario that fits nomogram usage, then you can wait for the eight-hour mark before you start the N-acetylcysteine. So you don't need to give it for everybody. If you can get that level back within eight hours, then it's fine to wait until you get the level and actually plot it on the nomogram. Otherwise, you should use N-acetylcysteine when there's a detectable level or there's a suspicion that, you know, they present it as a delayed acetaminophen or staggered acetaminophen use. And how about for sort of the obvious massive overdose? I would assume that, you know, someone who's obviously just taken 30 grams of acetaminophen two hours ago, you're just going to start NAC even before you get any levels back? It depends what that patient looks like for us. <laughs> This is interesting, yeah. really. Okay, uh, let's talk a, a little bit more about this because it seems like that seems to be sort of practice that I've seen a few times. For whatever reason, it'll take 90 minutes for any blood work to come back, two hours, three hours. It was a witnessed overdose or something that they know they took a huge amount of acetaminophen. Would you still wait for the blood work before starting NAC? That's a patient that could possibly not even meet criteria for starting NAC at the four-hour mark because of delayed absorption. Right, exactly. And that's that would be the argument for starting it because the nomogram would falsely reassure you that the patient's going to be okay. Anton, I know we're going to talk about massive presentations in a few minutes, but I think that the trick with, for me when you ask this question is that defining what a massive ingestion is and let's say specifically just in terms of the number of tablets taken, is tough. We don't really know this. So if I have a patient in front of me who's alert and oriented, conversing with me, pretty stable vital signs that telling me they took, and I'm being obviously facetious here, but 100 kilos of Tylenol two hours ago, I am not looking at that patient and thinking that they fit the paradigm or the toxidrome of a massively acetaminophen poison patient. And in my mind, I think... I'm going to wait to get a four-hour concentration to see what's going on. If that concentration is under the line, 
maybe I'll order a six-hour concentration or an eight-hour concentration to make sure, because we're talking about such a huge overdose potentially, that it doesn't go over the line, like Margaret said, the delayed absorption. But what we know with NAC is that if we get NAC started within about eight hours of a single acute ingestion in general, people do great. And so there aren't a lot of scenarios when somebody is able to talk to us that I wouldn't recommend necessarily getting a level within eight hours and and making treatment decisions there. As I say this, I'm like star, star, star. There's so many exceptions to this, but. And if that patient came in at the 16 hour mark, you would start the NAC right away because time is liver. But if they come in at the four-hour mark, you can afford to wait for that level to come back to decide whether or not they need to be treated. And we say this because we see patients that end up not requiring treatment, that have given us a history where they say they took something. And based on that clinical course, it just doesn't end up being accurate or reflective that whatever they took will lead to hepatotoxicity. There's adverse effects to NAC, so we don't want to give it to everybody. But almost everybody. (laughs) (laughs) And those adverse effects are? There's an anaphylactoid reaction documented with NAC, which means you get histamine release based on the speed of the infusion of the N-acetylcysteine. And so, you know, in a mild histamine release, you might get urticaria. Otherwise, you can still get bronchospasm. You can still get hypotension. You can get full-blown anaphylactic sort of symptomatology. It's just that the mechanism is different. And it you know, might need full-blown treatment of an anaphylactoid reaction with H2 blocker, an H1 blocker, a you know, steroids, epinephrine, the whole gamut if you get a very sick patient. Okay. I want to talk about this a little bit more because... One of the pitfalls is a delay to starting NAC, right? Totally. I mean, that's definitely one of the pitfalls, and I assume that's what you see at the poison center, right? not infrequently. And then on the other hand, for many of these patients, we want to wait until we can plot them on the nomogram for the acute ingestions, you know, under four hours. So I guess there's sort of a, there's a magic zone in there somewhere where that's reasonable. But I, I think it's just important for listeners to understand that on the one hand, the data would suggest that one of the pitfalls is delaying giving NAC. And then on the other hand, we don't want to just jump on NAC the second the patient presents before we even have any levels back. I think one of the really important things is, you know, as a physician, you recognize that this patient needs NAC. And you order that NAC, but there's a delay to getting it up from the pharmacy to having it mixed. I think it's really important to explain to the bedside nurse, that this drug has to go in immediately once you make the decision that it should be given. Ah, okay. So that's a good clarification. So in terms of making that decision, it doesn't have to be made right away. But once you do make that decision, the drug needs to be given right away. Yeah, I think that really the the take-home point that is supported by the literature, in my opinion, is that the majority of acetaminophen overdoses get treated with N-acetylcysteine within eight hours, they do not go on to get sick. So what that means is that you need to make a decision if your patient needs NAC within eight hours. If your patient presents at the four-hour mark and you can get a serum acetaminophen concentration back in time, you can wait because they may actually be under the line and not need it. If you think it's going to be longer than eight hours before getting NAC, then that sort of concept of time is liver 
we want to be starting NAC right away should apply, and that's how you should do it. Would it be reasonable in a patient who you suspect might be a massive overdose, you haven't got any levels back yet, to ask the nurse to get some NAC ready so that when you do make that decision to give the NAC, they can give it immediately? You know, sort of similar to, you know, patient coming in in cardiac arrest, I might ask the nurse to just have some norepinephrine ready, because if we get ROSC, we're probably going to want to start norepinephrine right away, and that way it's all just ready to go. Yeah, I think that that's reasonable, and, and I don't want to discount this this idea of a, a massive overdose. I think it's very reasonable, you know, if you have a patient who, on your assessment, fits what we kind of understand to be this toxidrome of a massive acetaminophen ingestion, that is somebody that you would want to start knack on right away. I just want to be clear that there are people who do not fit that toxidrome but are telling you that they took a huge amount of acetaminophen, but they're not clinically looking like that toxidrome. That might be a patient that I would feel comfortable waiting to get a serum acetaminophen concentration on. And truthfully, they're not that frequent. You know, the literature suggests somewhere over 500 milligrams per kilo. So that's an extra strength tablet per kilo of acetaminophen is the def definition of massive overdose. And in fact, at the Poison Center, we probably care for one of those patients a month. So yes, it's a really worrisome scenario. Massive acetaminophen overdoses have got a different toxidrome, but they're not that frequent. Good to know. All right, I want to get onto something even more controversial and more complicated, <laughs> and that is the dosing of NAC. There are many different IV and oral NAC protocols out there. Dr. Austin, what do we need to know about the dosing of NAC? I think that what people need to know is that in general, when we're dealing with acetaminophen toxicity, regardless of the scenario, the way that NAC is dosed is as a bolus dose of NAC up front over a few hours. So people get a higher concentration delivered up front, and then we give a significantly less concentration as an infusion for a much longer period of time. I don't really think it's helpful for me to spew out a bunch of doses right now because my head would be spinning if I was listening to that. And the reason I don't want to spew them out is because where we're at right now with NAC dosing, it's come a long way since it was first introduced and even since I was in residency. And depending on where you're practicing, different poison centers have slightly different protocols. And the best thing to do would be to work with your poison center to figure out how to dose the NAC. Fair enough. So what you're saying, to clarify, is that there are many different protocols out there it's actually very complicated once you take into account the timing, the dose of acetaminophen taken, the comorbidities, the coingestions, et cetera, the underlying liver disease or not liver disease. It's so complicated that the best practical move is to speak to your poison center and ask them for the dose. Yes. I have a few other points to make. And I have to acknowledge that, you know, another Canadian toxicologist said that toxicologists have done a great job of making the management of acetaminophen so complicated that now everybody just has to call us for it. And that's a little bit what we've done. But part of this is that now, hopefully, we can start somebody who needs NAC on NAC, but stop that NAC a little bit earlier. 
Now, somebody that takes a really, really huge dose of acetaminophen and maybe needs more NAC than the previous protocols would have called for, we have the ability to give them a little bit more NAC and to make these assessments because of these more tailored protocols. So that's sort of why I think, firstly, the protocols are different all over the country. And secondly, even within each poison center, based on this type of patient and their presentation and some of these factors, like you've mentioned, the dosing is a little bit different. All right. So rather than just doing the very easy thing of just clicking the little box on your protocol of NAC, it is almost always worth the call to Poison Center to ask them about the dosing, especially in a patient who might have comorbidities or co-ingestions. Yes. I have one other little caveat, though. And Margaret has spoken about some of the adverse effects associated with NAC, the anaphylactoid reactions nausea and vomiting, especially with oral NAC. Part of the problem with where we're at with NAC dosing now, and this is my opinion, is that it's, as we've mentioned, pretty varied across the country. And as a result, we've seen some horrible cases of NAC administration and dosing errors that have led to massive overdoses of N-acetylcysteine, or this antidote, being administered to people and people have had catastrophic outcomes. That was my next question, why it's important to get the right dose. Exactly. And so so I actually think that this is becoming a bigger issue, and it'll be interesting what happens over the next few years with it. But I think that the most ideal situation is that working with your poison center and your hospital pharmacy, that there are sort of order sets that allow for knack to be ordered in a way that prevents administration and ordering errors. And so that's going to sound like I'm contradicting myself, but it's not meant to. What I'm saying is the poison center can help you figure out the best protocol for how to dose your patient, i.e. what dose they need and for how long, when to stop giving knack. But hopefully, especially with where we're at with EMRs and electronic ordering, I think the safest thing is for this to be incorporated into electronic order sets in some capacity because we've seen some pretty horrible things happen when people have written them out. How about this as a take-home message? Always speak to your poison center about the dosing, but also work with your local teams to make sure that there's an IV protocol that everyone can agree on. And before you click the IV protocol, speak to your poison center and if your IV protocol happens to jibe with what your poison center is suggesting, great. And if it doesn't, you can make the appropriate adjustments. And I think, you know, I think our poison center has helped hospitals develop their protocols and stuff like that. So if you're listening and you're in a position to, to make that happen at your hospital, it's worthwhile to reach out and contact us. All right, let's talk about massive overdose. I want to talk about the definition of massive overdose, the presentation, and the treatment of massive overdose. We've already touched a little bit on what massive overdose is, but I want to get into it a little bit more. So first of all, how do we define massive overdose? And when should we suspect a massive overdose? So I think we alluded to this before. The literature is not very helpful on that, but somewhere over 500 milligrams per kilogram is suggested as being the definition of a massive overdose. In an average adult, that's about 30 grams? Right, 30 grams or more. Got it. Okay. So that's in terms of the amount taken. What about in terms of clinically? 
how would you define a massive overdose in terms of clinically? You know, there's lactic acidosis, there's decreased LOA, hypothermia. So the massive overdose patient is something that I like to think of as actually a very distinct toxidrome from what we've been speaking about earlier. And that's because we think that what's happening in terms of the pathophysiology is a little bit different in the massive overdose patient than it is in all the rest. The patients that I'm concerned about who take a massive overdose, Margaret's given us a 500 mg per kilo, for example, take that overdose, may fit this toxidrome. And this toxidrome looks like a patient who is altered, often comatose, like GCS, you know, six or something, who has evidence of a metabolic acidosis with an elevated lactate. And what's happening here is that the acetaminophen parent compound and the NAPKI as well are interacting with one of the enzymes in oxidative phosphorylation and our electron transport chain and affecting the way energy is being produced in our cell. And, you know, I can go into the weeds for that, but I think that the point is that that's a little bit different than what we've been talking about today. Otherwise, we've really just been talking about hepatotoxicity, which is produced by NAPKI, right? And transaminases and stuff like this. But I'm giving you a patient who's coming in GCS6 with an evidence of, you know, their pH may be 7.0 or 7.1, and they may have a lactate of like 6 or 8 or whatever. And these are early presentations. This is not 24 hours after the exposure. This is two to four hours afterwards. And what goes along with that is a serum acetaminophen concentration that is through the roof. And when I say through the roof, I'm talking 5,000 or 6,000 micromoles per liter, maybe 4,000, you know? Okay. So just to review the differences between a massive overdose patient and a usual overdose patient, they can present earlier with badness. Their acetaminophen levels through the roof. They're altered. They have a lactic acidosis plus minus hypothermia. They look different. The single acute ingestions that come in generally don't look like that. This patient looks different. You know, they're found unconscious. All right, great. So it's nice just to understand, I think, on a very general level, it's almost like two totally different toxidromes, two different kinds of patients, two different presentations. This massive overdosed patient I just talked to you about, their transaminases, this LF, like your ALT could be like 19. The transaminases are rock-solid normal. Wow. So very different. And again, to reiterate what you had mentioned before, distinctly uncommon. Maybe the poison center in Ontario sees one a month. So now that we've defined massive overdose and given you a sense that it's really a separate toxidrome and the differences between a massive overdose and a regular overdose... Let's talk about the treatment considerations of a massive acetamin overdose and how they're different. So the one thing we already talked about was charcoal and that you might extend that cutoff of one to two hours to four hours for a massive overdose. And this is a patient you're going to have to intubate before you can give them that charcoal because they're so altered. Right. A very good point, which uh, I have been burned, I have to admit, before for a patient who is a tiny bit altered and they look okay and, oh yeah, they could easily take charcoal. And by the time they get the charcoal, they're actually more altered. And the last thing you want is a patient to aspirate on charcoal. So good practical point there. Secure the airway before giving charcoal in an altered patient. 
so that that's charcoal and then the nactos is going to be different but again the bottom line there is speak to your poison center but they're still going to need nac they're still going to need nac actually let's let's talk about nac in particular with massive overdose and what some of the pitfalls are there so one thing we know is that the doses are generally higher but what are some of the pitfalls when it comes to giving nac for massive overdose you know i think in the massive overdose the pitfall might be to just run a standard NAC infusion because this is the exact example of a patient that with all of these new NAC dosing protocols, we think that this patient could benefit from a higher dose of NAC. And so we want to give it to them. So, you know, the standard older NAC dosing protocols would not have provided the amount of NAC that we think this patient ideally needs. And so we want to give this patient more. That would be the pitfall. So we've talked about Charcoal, we've talked about NAC dosing. With charcoal, we might give it up to four hours. And with NAC in your massive overdose, it'll be a higher dose. Let's move on to hemodialysis. And I'll just simply ask, what are the indications for hemodialysis in acetaminophen poisoning? So I don't think hemodialysis is the standard of care. If you have a patient who is a massive overdose and you think that the acetaminophen parent is responsible for at least some of the toxicity, for the lactic acidosis, for the depressed level of consciousness, then we want to get rid of the acetaminophen. And acetaminophen has got some normal roots of metabolism, but it's fairly slow as compared to how long it's going to take us to get rid of that massive amount of acetaminophen. And we could clear it from the serum faster with dialysis. It's one of those compounds that's got a small volume of distribution. It's very water-soluble. It's a small molecule. It will cross dialysis membranes. So yes, we can effectively dialyze out acetaminophen parent. We can't dialyze out the napkey, but we can get rid of the parent so that we decrease the time of the acidosis, etc. So it is an adjunct that we might use for the massive acetaminophen poison patient. XTRIP is a you know working group of learned toxicologists and nephrologists who have written a, a statement on indications for dialysis for acetaminophen poison patients, and they include an acetaminophen level that's greater than 6,000 micromoles per liter. I think that that might be a bit conservative, but, you know, with very high levels, a high lactate level, an altered level of consciousness, those would be some of the indications that I would consider using hemodialysis for in an acetaminophen poison patient. Okay. So just to review there, indications for dialysis, a level of greater than 6,000 micromoles per liter, a significantly elevated lactate, metabolic acidosis, and altered mental status. Agree. Just sending that patient for hemodialysis is not enough. We need to be giving NAC as well as the hemodialysis. And in fact, we actually give a higher dose of NAC while that patient is having a hemodialysis run. Okay. So I guess the pitfall there is assuming that they don't need NAC if they're getting hemodialysis. And it's actually quite the opposite. They actually need more NAC if they're going for hemodialysis. Yeah. Great. Okay. So We've talked about charcoal, we've talked about NAC, and we've talked about hemodialysis. Sort of the newer kid on the block is fomepazole. And I think the dose there is 15 milligrams per kilogram IV given once. When should we consider giving fomepazole for massive overdose and and what's the evidence for it? I'm so happy you asked. (laughs) 
You know, Anton, I don't have a clear answer for this right now. And I accept that. I know, I know it's so annoying, but I think that this is really cool stuff. And I think it's really important for all of us in the emergency medicine community to know about this. It's going to be coming out in the next, I don't know, 10 years. We'll have more concrete information. Where we're at right now with famepazole for acetaminophen is that there's evidence in animal studies, human volunteer studies, and case series that patients who are treated with famepazole get a bit more benefit and in a different way than just giving NAC. Let me just explain this for one more minute. Famepazole does two things, and it does different things than NAC. One thing famepazole does is halt the formation of NAPKI. NAC doesn't do that. But famepazole blocks the CYP2E1 enzyme that metabolizes acetaminophen to NAPKI. The second thing, and this is super cool, but the second thing that it seems like famepazole does is act at a downstream site in the pathway of cellular necrosis to inhibit some of the proteins from getting activated on that pathway. So what that means is maybe somewhere down the pathway where necrosis is already happening, that pathway gets blocked by famepazole. Again, in vitro stuff. So basically, NAPKI has already been formed. It started this hepatocellular injury, but famepazole may be able to modify the amount of injury that would occur from each molecule of NAPKI that's been formed already. I'm a simple guy. The way I'm going to think of it is famepazole works on a different part of the pathway than NAC does. And so an adjunct to NAC, which NAC is not going to cover. Exactly. From a biologic perspective, it makes sense that it works. And based on some limited evidence, I mean, of course, in toxicology, we never have huge RCTs on anything. But for toxicologic evidence, it's not bad. And so where we're at with it is that when you're calling the poison center with a massively poisoned patient who's altered metabolic acidosis, high lactate, crazy high acetaminophen level, we think maybe famepazole will help along with the high-dose NAC along with hemodialysis. Who else do we think it for? When you're calling the poison center with that patient who maybe has some acetaminophen, a low number in their blood, but evidence of hepatic injury already. Maybe they've got an ALT of 500 because they took their acetaminophen, you know, a supertherapeutic ingestion or something like that. There's kind of two scenarios. We don't really know where it's going to benefit yet. And you kind of nailed it, Anton. Toxicology is notorious for having crappy data because we always say, we can't do RCTs, we can't do RCTs. If you read the literature on this right now, there's lots of back and forth by very prominent toxicologists in my mind who are going to say, hold up, guys. If there is one thing you can do an RCT about, it's going to be acetaminophen poisoning. And those are the studies that are being done right now to figure out who famepazole will benefit. And they'll hopefully be prospective and randomized and higher quality. So we'll have better answers for this. That'll be great. I'm looking forward to that. So am I. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe in our lifetime. (laughs) Uh, Suffice to say that for fomepazole, anyone who you're thinking about dialysis, you should be thinking about the possibility of fomepazole as well and speak to your poison center about. And then the other patient is the patient who appears to be in liver failure, regardless of whether they're going for hemodialysis or not. And I think, you know, 
what like what happens from a very practical standpoint is when I'm talking to doctors, like when I'm on call at the poison center and talking to doctors about it, sometimes they're like, what are you talking about? Like there is no toxic alcohol within like a hundred kilometers of this patient. Why are you telling me to give femepazole? And this is why. And I love talking about it. So if you're on the phone with your toxicologist, you can ask them that. But this is why. And and it's cool because some of the literature is in the emergency medicine literature about this. I think the bottom line from this entire episode thus far is that acetaminophen toxicity is a lot more complicated than perhaps we've traditionally thought, and that there should be nothing in treating acetaminophen toxicity that we should be flippant about. And the next time I get a patient with acetaminophen poisoning, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm either going to text Dr. Austin or text Dr. Thompson, (laughs) depending on uh, what time of day. (laughs) No, just kidding. Of course, I will call the Poison Center and hope that one of you two will be on call that, that evening. I'd like to summarize some of the pitfalls that we've talked about. Maybe actually the best way to summarize this is we can take turns. Dr. Austin. Acetaminophen toxicity can present with several different scenarios, specifically a single acute overdose, a supertherapeutic ingestion or a chronic overdose, or a massive overdose, which looks a little bit different than the other ones. When doing laboratory investigations for an acetaminophen poisoned patient, remember to wait for the four-hour mark before you draw your acetaminophen concentration. And if you're suspicious because they've taken a slow-release preparation, an opioid with it, or an anticholinergic with it, or a massive overdose, that you might have to repeat your acetaminophen level at the 8, the 12 hours, to be sure that you don't miss a patient who might go on to actually need anacetylcysteine. Okay. My next pitfall is going to be related to that. Pitfall number three would be to apply the nomogram for patients that it wasn't intended to be used for. I think the fourth pitfall is NAC dosing and the idea that poison centers can help direct and guide you to get the most optimal and best NAC dosing for your patient. And that having linked that in some way to a hospital-based order set will help to minimize errors at the administration. The massive overdose looks like a different toxidrome. They're the patient with the altered level of consciousness early after the exposure, a lactic acidosis, a pH that's very low, maybe hypothermia early after their exposure before you have any evidence of liver enzyme elevation. Great. The sixth pitfall I'm going to mention is failure to order an acetaminophen level on a patient with an altered level of awareness that isn't immediately obvious and in the patient with a suicidal ingestion of any kind. And for the seventh and final pitfall, uh, Dr. Thompson? Think about acetaminophen as being the etiology of your hepatitis in a patient where you don't have any other obvious cause because NAC can be a treatment even after acetaminophen is already gone. So I hope in this podcast we've empowered people to understand the nuances of acetaminophen toxicity so that they can better take care of their patients. (laughs) 